In this edition of the Futures Work podcast, Harry Pitt sat down with Tim Strangleman, author of Voices of Guinness, a new oral history of the Park Royal Brewery. Harry started the discussion by asking Tim how he came to research this topic. Well, I was working in the Guinness Brewery at Park Royal in 2004, um, and I was on a project that looked at older male workers, and um, that particular production site was very good for older male workers. Um, and I'd read a book uh, called Closing the Life and Death of an American Factory uh, by Bim Bamberger and Kathy Davison. And I'd been inspired by that. And basically, they'd worked together on an oral history and photographic study of a furniture plant in uh, North Carolina that was closing. And, and they'd done it. And I wanted to kind of replicate it. Uh, and I asked the uh, managing the manager there on site if we could do the same. And they gave us a small grant to pay for a photographer and for some of my oral histories. So I did that. And then... Um, I went to the archive and realised there was a far bigger project here and um, basically the last 15 or so years I've been fulfilling that project Both and the more I dug the more the story got more interesting over and above the very interesting story of the closure but it was a very historic site that dated back to the 1930s but somehow I knew intuitively it told a wider story about how we think about work both uh, in the past, the present, and uh, I guess in the future. You use the phrase to, to, to explain what it is you're doing in the book as an imaginative history of work. Do you want to say a little bit about that as a method or a way of seeing yeah, the research? Um, I've been very inspired by, um, well, he was a kind of polymath, uh, Humphrey Jennings. If people remember the opening ceremony to the 2012 uh, Olympics, um, the inspiration for that display was Humphrey Jennings' book, Pandemonium, which is a collection of all sorts of different writings, imaginations, as Humphrey Jennings would call them, uh, about the responses to industrialization. So you saw that in that kind of tableau in the center of the stadium. But Humphrey Jennings' idea, he was a surrealist artist, filmmaker, writer, uh, from the 1930s he died in I think about 1950 but he was that surrealist sensibility is really using different snapshots or cuts of material to tell a broader story so it's often it's in the juxtaposition of two seemingly different things that you can tell a broader story about something so, and I like the idea of getting different types of evidence or imagination or images and using them so the book is a kind of play on the idea of image and imagination so i'm using both visual images of different sorts so photography painting prints uh, various things but also word pictures and accounts of work and autobiographical reflection and oral histories to tie it together to look at the ways in which people have made sense of going to work and organising and thinking about how work could be and should be and how you might change things in order to make it better or to work better. Uh, a major theme of the book is the, is the type of industrial citizenship to which workers were, um, or, or which workers have access to in their work with Guinness um, and, and the kind of the, the moral order that surrounded that as a type of social and, and political and organisational life. Um, can you say a little bit about about what that was like for the people you spoke to and what it could tell us about about that period of work and potentially about 
what we might look for in a, in a good or decent vision of work today? Well, from the 1940s, uh, Guinness managers uh, at the site had a vision of what they called Guinness citizenship, which interestingly, and I make use of this in the book, of T.H. Marshall's idea of industrial citizenship, which is kind of undeveloped in his book. But that vision for Guinness was creating a workforce that was confident, aware of itself, and could potentially grow, and particularly younger workers. So it sounds very controlling, but what they were after, particularly with younger workers, was building in them the capacity to be rounded humans. You know, they weren't just talking about being um, workers, productive workers. They were talking about people who would question, would leave, lead active lives. They would take part in sporting and cultural activities on the site, but would somehow kind of grow in and through their work. So it was a kind of vision for workers that seems so alien now to people. People talk about human resource management and developing workers, whereas this was a kind of more rounded account of what it was to be human. And it does very much chime in with T.H. Marshall's vision of citizenship, that if people were going to take full part in democracy, they had to take full part in democracy and be aided and helped with that. What... Of course, the way that translates and changes over time is different from how it was envisaged, but what you get in the Guinness workforce and in others I've interviewed from that era, from the 1960s and 70s, is a kind of sense of people that are individually and collectively confident in their skin. They're, they kind of are embedded in their work. They have a confidence in it that allows them to stand their ground sometimes, be belligerent sometimes, but also take responsibility and take ownership for it. To be, it matters to them. It's it's something. And it's interesting for me to think about how management might see that as a negative, that people disagree with them, they want the debate, they question management. But in some senses, if you think about it as a kind of a collective endeavour, you're actually empowering workers to be confident in themselves. And and that sometimes can be uncomfortable, but it's sometimes necessary for organisations to have a critical voice that cares, that cares enough about their work to care. And I think that's the key thing. And I think what's often seen as the management's right to manage kind of obliterates that sense that workers have a right to question management. So it's... It, raises questions about industrial democracy and hence the idea of citizenship. Citizens have rights and responsibilities and it's trying to inculcate in a kind of collective and individual body a sense of, okay, if you're going to have a seat at the table, you need to be confident and be able to use that seat at the table for, for good purposes, good and ill. To what extent did the, uh, did the, the magazine... Um, at Park Royal Guinness time, kind of encapsulate some of that, some of that cult, that workplace culture, and, and and some of that kind of voice, I guess, in the workplace. It certainly projects what uh, some of the management wanted, and of course, it was. I wouldn't even say it's democratic, but it did include workers' voices. They wrote articles for it. They contributed to it, and also, I think. It wouldn't have been so successful if it had just been a kind of management sheet that workers ignored. 
genuinely, I think people consumed it. And I, I say that with some confidence because oftentimes people would show me their stash of Guinness Time. And, and if you bear in mind that that magazine finished in 1975, so by the time I was interviewing workers, it was kind of 30 years later. So to keep something that was ephemeral, keep it for 30 years in your desk drawer or your locker mm-hmm. or whatever, and to fondly remember it is something I think that's quite impressive. And I think, of course, people didn't read something and just think, you know what, I'm going to behave like that. But I think it's a general tone that you can just see it as something that is a kind of management line. And oftentimes when I've given papers about this, people have criticised me for almost naively taking on that the management wrote something and workers believed it. I don't think they did in that sort of way, but there's a kind of respect for workers in the tone of some of the, uh, well, much of the writing. Some of it is of its age, but much of it, as I've, I've said in the book, they're quoting often Aristotle, uh, George Bernard Shaw, um, William Morris, and others about work and the nature of work. So there's a kind of respect, inherent respect for their audience that people would know and understand and think about and be able to engage with this kind of writing and the ideas that are there. They, they're not talking down and saying, let me tell you about this. They're using these names as if there's a kind of collective recognition of who these people are. So I think there's a there's a deal of respect for the people that they're addressing uh, and being addressed, addressed by. So Guinness time the magazine had people write a reflection of their work had reports from the 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 sports clubs and and the other associated aspects of of life at guinness they kind of uh, you know in the book you write about how the line was blurred for some workers between labor and, and leisure time in a certain extent so just tell us a little bit about that type of unified, almost total kind of world that Guinness offered of intellectual employment, sports, social life as kind of one package Mm. as a community, a family, as you describe it. Well, especially if you imagine in the 1940s and 50s, people's opportunities to do sport, other leisure activities, there weren't the kind of leisure facilities that there are now. Um, sort of all privatised perhaps but they weren't they weren't there so people it was kind of natural that people would take part in football rugby clubs cricket clubs or other forms of activity so I mentioned in the book there were two theatre groups at Park Royal um, there were about 30 different clubs of various things from bird fanciers through gardening clubs uh, and all the rest of it and I think People were more prepared. They lived probably in closer proximity around the brewery and they socialised. They had their own um, uh, bar there with subsidised alcohol and what have you. So people were more naturally inclined to socialise with the people that they worked with. Um, And I think some of that is the legacy of the Second World War and um, National Service I think people were more kind of collective and they lived in the local locale, um, so it was natural for them. But what gradually happens over time is that people move to more suburban locations. And I think generally with rising incomes, probably they did want to go on foreign holidays or um, use cars, increasing car ownership, to do leisure in a more uh, 
what we call a privatized sense um, with perhaps more of the kind of nuclear family rather than collectively with their workmates. And it's interesting, the tone of that magazine it, as uh, it finishes in 1975 and certainly by the 1960s, even the early 1960s, you see a change in tone that the kind of paternalism that's on display in the 1940s and 50s isn't sustainable and it starts to shift. And also as Guinness becomes a more diversified uh, corporate structure, so it's not just centred on part royal. Um, a magazine that is rooted in one place makes less sense anyway. So you've got that kind of centripetal forces, uh, uh, centrifugal forces um, acting on a workplace, as well as you've got the changing nature of work and social and leisure life, and also you've got raised wages. So you imagine if you have one or two percent increase in income real incomes over that time you know by the end of three decades you've fundamentally transformed a certainly blue and white collar workforce beyond recognition from the 1940s so people have different cultures and expectations that in the 1940s probably didn't people didn't have mm. and i mean i guess illustrating where those changes have brought us the site where uh Park Royal did stand is now, you know, kind of dominated by logistics centres and, and and this the, the landscape of the contemporary gig platform economy on demand economy, whichever way you want to put it. Um, you know what what has kind of been lost in that transition? Do you think, and what are the potential or the potential resources for humanising? Is the word that you, you use a couple of times in the book to describe? What that model of industrial citizenship did to, to economic life, mm. but what what is the potential within that new landscape that's replaced the double workplaces like you were looking at for that to be rediscovered? So I suppose when I was talking about people being embedded in their work and caring about it, part of care, the sense of care, is to be engaged, to to care is to coax, to uh, mentor, and all the rest of it. Uh, so care takes on a lots of different things but to to be embedded in your work it involves rights and responsibilities whereas what I saw when I walked around the site now is and it's no disrespect to the people who work there but these relationships are what Richard Sennett called fugitive so people's ability to access work uh, is, is especially regular permanent work is more difficult so people of necessity can't embed themselves in their work in the same way that those people did all through that long post-war boom and then beyond it so people have a different attitude and a different expectations i know when i first started teaching in the late 90s i asked my students who'd heard of a job for life the concept of a job for life and about half the 90 odd students at nottingham as i was teaching there put their hands up and then i said who expects a job for life and no one put their hand up and i was very struck at that moment just how things had changed because i think that if you'd asked that a decade or so before that people would have at least expected however unrealistically a job for life well, it's interesting, and there's one of the students, I'll never forget him, he, wrote, he shouted out, um, uh, who'd want one? And I think it's interesting that the workers at Guinness probably would have wanted it and heard of a job for life and expected it because they could see what unfolded 
both in terms of being socialised into work and then in turn the way they socialised others into work and they humanised the place they work. Whereas when I walked around what's at that site now in Park Royal, you could see that workers were having a very fugitive relationship with that type of work they had. And it was embodied in the buildings for me that um, the buildings that had been constructed on the site were effectively 10 shed, retail sheds or processing sheds that I would imagine would have taken at best a couple of weeks to put up and would probably take a week to take down. And they certainly wouldn't last 70 years or 20 years. They didn't need to. They weren't designed for it. So they were almost the embodied, the embodiment of this embedded economy, something that could be put up very quickly and taken down very quickly. And then almost what went on inside it was immaterial. And the, the values that capitalism creates in those sorts of buildings is very interesting for me. Um, so... The types of contracts people are enjoying, uh, the lack of pensions, almost certainly the lack of unionisation. What that does is create a set of people who don't want to, can't invest, of necessity can't invest in their workplace. And I think personally that we're all the poorer for that, that we have our goods and services and production is is being carried out by people who of necessity can't care about it they they aren't being paid and they aren't being employed in a way that's going to lead them to care mm. and i and i think that's care in terms of for themselves for their employer for their employees and maybe for their customers whoever they might be and a final question what is the purpose or the value of a, of a kind of you talk about nostalgia in the book and how it can have a kind of radical dimension nostalgia you know, in terms of looking back, in order to find something for the present, what do you think is the what do you think is the value and the, the, the importance of that today? On one level, it's simply to remind people this is what was, this is how workplace and workers and work was organised. So it begs a kind of question, even if you don't articulate it, of if we did it once, why why don't we do it now? And one of my colleagues once said to me, why don't why aren't organisations like that now? What happened? And I think it's incumbent on us as academics and political people to maybe ask that question. And if if we understand, I think we're too quick to say, yeah, it can't be like that. I think one of the things we have to ask is how what were the circumstances that brought that situation to being and how might we replicate in a different way decent conditions for people where they can actually grow in and through their work and if we're going to say that's impossible now then we need to ask well what are the implications of that is it that we have to find those kind of sources of identity outside the workplace or might we in a very different setting try and humanize work in order to get a different way the context of the long boom in this country and elsewhere was very unique but we could still create those opportunities for people if we chose to. It's a choice. It's a choice to see good conditions uh, and facilities for workers as a cost to the bottom line, or we could see it as an investment in people. And so I think even if you take a very passive view, the book is about reminding people of 
what it was, what was there, how people gained. And I quote a guy who I interviewed at the end of the interview who said, um, can you imagine what we used to have here? And I say in the book, it's almost as if he was enjoying illicit pressure, just remembering what uh, he used to have. And it was almost as if he was kind of naughty, being caught with his hand in the sweet jar. And he knew it wasn't going to last. He was going to be found out. And I thought, what is it about the way we've constructed work that people feel guilty when they have enjoyed decent conditions? So I think that's the message of the book, is a political message to say it doesn't have to be like this. We're doing this out of choice. We always have choices. Uh, managers and workers and people and citizens have choices. And we need to say there is another possibility, even if we don't go down that road. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you.